there are just cybersecurity challenges everywhere, whether it's your coffee pot or your car. All of these are socio-technical problems. They're not just purely scientific problems. They cut across computer science and social sciences like criminology, sociology, uh, geriatrics, et cetera, et cetera. There are many different areas and it's pretty much hard to find anything that isn't affected by cybersecurity. Welcome to the Reimagining Cyber Podcast, where we share short and to the point perspectives on the cyber landscape. It's all about engaging yet casual conversations on what organizations are doing to reimagine their cyber programs while ensuring their business objectives are top priority. With my co-host, Stan Wisseman, Head of Security Strategists, I'm Rob Borrego, Chief Security Strategist, and this is Reimagining Cyber. Dan, who do we have joining us this week? Our guest is Jeremy Epstein, who is the lead program officer for the National Science Foundation's flagship cybersecurity research program, Secure and Trustworthy Cyberspace. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us today, Jeremy. Glad to be here. Now, Jeremy, I think we first met back in the early 90s while we were working on interoperability standards for trusted systems. Uh, I mean, I think you've been working in the, in the area of um, trusted systems for at least 30 plus years. You've worked at system integrators, software companies, done security consulting on election systems. And, and while you've always had a foot in R&D, since 2009, I, I believe you've had leadership roles in cybersecurity research. Can you provide an overview of your background and expand on your current role at NSF? Sure. Um, so I've been working in the cybersecurity field since long before it was called cybersecurity. Uh, and I get bored easily and I can't hold down a steady job. So I change periodically and do different things. Um, I started uh, in 2009 with SRI International, uh, where I helped Doug Maughan run his very applied cybersecurity research program for the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, then I came to the National Science Foundation, where I spent four years leading the Secure and Trustworthy Cyberspace Program, which is a big program, uh, 900,000 research projects going at any given time. Spent uh, a year uh, at DARPA leading privacy and uh, security research projects. Came back to NSF as a Dilbert pointy headed manager for three and a half years, leading a $250 million a year research area. And then about uh, six months ago, uh, rejoined the uh, SATSE program to lead it again. I really miss doing uh, the technology. Along the way, I've had the opportunity to work on things uh, like uh, developing the national cybersecurity research strategy, uh, several different versions of that which drive cybersecurity uh, across the federal government, as well as uh, working on several White House initiatives. So Jeremy, some of the things that you're seeing out there and all the different research that you're conducting, um, when you put that cybersecurity kind of scope on it, right? what are some of the impending changes you foresee coming? So cybersecurity is everywhere. It used to be we worried about it just in terms of computers, but now it, it can be anywhere. Uh, we fund projects, for example, on uh, privacy in embedded systems that get put in cornfields. You might say, what does that have to do with security or privacy? Well, it turns out that farmers don't want the farmer down the street knowing how well their corn is doing, but yet they want 
to be able to know what fertilizer it needs and how much water it needs. And so it's very important that you have secure sensors in the cornfields. Um, this is not something you might ordinarily have thought of. There are just cybersecurity challenges everywhere, whether it's your coffee pot or your car. Uh, and, and all of these are socio-technical problems. They're not just purely scientific uh, problems. They uh, cut across computer science uh, and social sciences like criminology, sociology, um, uh, geriatrics, et cetera, et cetera. There are many different areas and it's pretty much hard to find anything that isn't affected by cybersecurity uh, these days. So Jeremy, you, you bring up a term I'm not familiar with, socio-technical. I'm assuming that has to do with more of a culture aspect of cybersecurity or an awareness um, but you also bring in a number of different ologies that I, I, I didn't expect as well. Can you expand on an example project or two that you guys are, are sponsoring that covers that area? There's a wide range of things that fall under the socio-technical aspect. It's everything from how do people react to computers to how do people behave. So um, an example would be we funded a research project in New Mexico, which is where I grew up, where we uh, brought together, and when I say we, I mean NSF funded a research team there. We don't do the research ourselves at NSF. We funded a team that uh, interviewed uh, white, black, Hispanic, and Native American teenagers to understand their attitudes uh, towards privacy, which differ because of cultural differences. We uh, also funded research to look at how senior citizens, of, of which you and I are perilously close to becoming, <laughs> uh, to uh, see how uh, we react to phishing attacks in a way that might be different from somebody younger uh, who grew up as more of a digital native. Uh, and there are differences in how we do. And that one uh, grew into, it started out as a small seed project and it grew into a National Institutes of Health funded project. And it, I believe is affecting uh, how um, companies are now creating anti-phishing campaigns, aiming them differently at senior citizens than they do at, at uh uh, someone younger. We've funded uh, research in different kinds of passwords, uh, maybe thinking of passwords as moves on a chessboard or a monopoly board because people have an easier time visualizing that. Uh, maybe we can think of that. We put anthropologists in security operations centers because they're used to observing uh, uh, cultures different than their own. And uh, learning from them. And so putting sociologists in security operations centers has helped the SOCs uh, figure out better ways for the different people to work together in a collaborative manner than they had considered sociologists or experts in doing these sorts of things. So these are all examples of socio-technical uh, uh, solutions and socio-technical problems. So, Jeremy, that's really interesting what you just shared relative to uh, looking at New Mexico as an example kind of use case. And when you're looking at that scenario, is there a perspective around data privacy? And what comes out of the research that's conducted is how different people, different races, as an example, different age groups react and what the influences of the research around those different races, age groups, around data privacy initiatives will become. 
Well, in some cases, these will translate into uh, potentially different government programs, maybe different products that might be aimed at different audiences, customizations of products. Uh, and sometimes it's just understanding that different people react differently to um, technologies and that uh, we need just as just as we've gone seen this happen in the um, medical field, where it used to be that medical uh, testing was always done on white men, and then it was assumed that if uh, a uh, medical treatment worked on white men, it would work on everybody, which wasn't, of course, true. And it's taken a long time for the medical field to learn that you need. Uh, um, to look at different communities, I, I think we'll see that sort of thing in the cybersecurity world as well, where product uh, developers and product testers in the commercial world will be testing their products on a wider range of people to make sure that it really works properly with different audiences. You might say, well, everyone is, ever, is the same in front of a computer. Well, that's not really true. Uh, and I think we'll start seeing those impacts because we're seeing the reality that different people do react differently, uh, both in terms of their attitudes and their physiological aspects when it comes to things like biometrics. Not everybody is the same. Now, Jeremy, one of the common areas of interest we've had is software security. And I think we both will agree is we're not in this place where we thought we'd be. We're still dealing with very insecure applications that are put into production. It gets um, a bit tiresome to constantly have to be trying to educate developers and um, do after the fact kind of security testing, even though that's best practice. Um, what are some of the approaches that you're looking at and have you know spawned with the, your research projects around trying to and minimize the creation, uh, creation of software weaknesses in the first place. So about 15 years ago, I was working for a commercial software company and I created what I called the seven deadly sins, uh, trying to focus on a small number of things to get uh, developers, instead of saying, throwing the whole book and saying, these are all the things you need to do. I came up with the seven most critical. Turned out it was kind of funny um, when I went to brief this uh, seven deadly sins in an Asian country where the notion of seven deadly sins isn't part of the culture uh, the way it is in countries like the United States and Europe where there's a strong Christian influence. I first had to explain as a Jewish guy what seven deadly sins meant um, to this audience before they could understand why this was important and, wh and what the joke was behind it. Um, oh, man. But, but I think, I think the, the point of it is an important one that we expect every developer to be a security expert now and they can't be. We have to do a better job, and we are funding a number of projects uh, in the SATSE program where we're studying the psychological aspects of what causes developers to make security mistakes. We're also funding the technical aspects. How do we build APIs that can't be misused 
uh, from a security perspective so that we don't see the sorts of things we see in SSL implementations, TLS implementations, where the underlying implementation may be completely secure, but people use the APIs wrong and cause bad things to happen because they just didn't understand you have to call API X before you call Y and you can't skip Y before you go to Z, but the APIs themselves don't enforce these things. So what can we do to improve those APIs so programmers can't misuse them. And so we've got a lot of research going on in a lot of these different areas. And again, these are the sorts of things that we'll do the research, put out the papers, uh, and then these things get directly or indirectly picked up uh, by industry. One of the things that, that people sometimes don't understand is that research, there's sometimes a direct line between research and products and sometimes not. There's a study that we commissioned from the National Academies of Science about 10 years ago, which we call the tire track study, which uh, looks and looks like a bunch of treads on a tire, um, uh, like, like the, you would see on a not worn out tire. And it's showing the results of research going back from academia to industry and then the problems that get discovered going from industry back to academia and back and forth um, throughout many different fields. And so you see things like um, the origins of search uh, and this little company called Google grew out of an NSF uh, project where people were trying to understand what are better ways to search uh, academic databases. And they came up with something called PageRank and PageRank, of course, is the, the, the secret sauce in Google. Um, and that grew out of an NSF project. So NSF wasn't trying to invent Google. NSF was trying to provide the ability for academics to find relevant uh, research papers. And this is the way we frequently get research is fortuitous inventions. And that's as true in cybersecurity as in any other field. You know, we, we have a, a challenge, as you mentioned, about developers um, understanding how to, to securely develop applications. Are the languages themselves part of the, the issue? You know, could we do something more with ensuring that the, the languages the developers are using sort of lead them to ultimately developing more secure applications? Absolutely. Um, I, I actually wrote my first buffer overflow attack um, in the early 70s before that term had been uh, coined, decades before that term had been coined. I did a buffer overflow attack on an IBM 360 in Fortran, if you can believe that. Um, no, uh, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that we make uh, a grievous error in continuing to write in C and C++. It's, we've known for many years that this is a bad thing to do, but yet we continue doing it. And I understand people who say, but you can't create things from scratch and, and we need to use reuse libraries and things like that. And that's true, but we need to be working to get rid of it. And in particular in the research space, uh, I've long advocated that research conferences and journals should not publish papers that are addressing improving mechanisms to allow use of unsafe languages like C and C++. If we take away the incentive for publication, researchers will stop doing research in that mm. area, and then we'll get people looking at more substantive 
problems. We don't have infinite research funds and infinite research capacity. We should be working in the areas where we can make a difference. Um, and I also bring that attitude to bear in making funding decisions at NSF, uh, discouraging research that is incremental in better ways to make C and C++ and instead more foundational to understanding uh, deeper problems and use of better languages. Now, Jeremy, one of the areas that you've had some interest in for, uh, for many years is around election security. And obviously, the, uh, the security of uh, this election and past elections have been a hot topic. Is there anything particularly exciting that you can share from a technical perspective? I was on standby election day in the day, the few days after that, basically waiting for inquiries, calls, as were most of my colleagues. Uh, and everything from a technology perspective ran really, really smoothly. The work we've done as, as scientists, as advocates, and most importantly, the election officials have done over the past decade really paid off. Uh, the move to pretty much all paper ballots uh, meant that when there were questions, we could look at it. We knew what voters wanted to do because we could actually look at their ballots. There really weren't uh, any significant problems uh, with the actual mechanism of the election. The bigger issue was uh, misinformation and disinformation leading up to and after the election. And that's something we fund as well. Uh, a lot of that is socio-technical problems. How do people uh, understand truth and, and uh, accuracy and, and those sorts of things? These are problems that big companies are struggling with and researchers are struggling with too. So that, that's sort of the new focus. Um, we've, we've addressed a lot of the problems with paper ballots and good audit procedures that are becoming increasingly common. And, um, you know, I slept much better after, uh, during, uh, before, during, and after this election uh, from a technology perspective than I have in many, many years. Well, thank you to, um, to you as well as those that you work with to help build in that resilience into the election systems. I mean, I think having those paper trails takes away the uncertainty as to the voting tallies, right? Because uh, you can go back and audit and, and, and do the comparison between the logs. Um, resilience is, is, a, is a, um, a, a term we're, we're focusing on uh, just because I, you know, we believe that we need to take cybersecurity into that direction. Are, are you also seeing that as far as, again, part of the research you're, you're helping fund, uh, helping um, us build more resiliency into our cybersecurity and our systems? It isn't a specific uh, topic area. So the, the program I lead has something like 950,000 research projects going at any given time. So it's very hard for me to point to it and say, well, that one is doing resilience um, and, and that one isn't because there's so many um, in a certain sense, there's resiliency of the research by the fact that we have so many different projects going on in so many different areas. Um, we do have uh, projects, though, that we fund. For example, the National Academies of Science has a uh, uh, cyber resilience uh, research group. We explore a huge range of cyber resilience issues. Uh, we get inquiries from all over the government private industry, Congress, et cetera, and explore many different areas. And the result of that is not research, but the result is reports on where additional research is needed. 
to understand resilience. Um, and yes, this is really crucial for cybersecurity resilience uh, in the forms of uh, uh, everything from the computers in your car, what happens if there's an attack. Uh, uh, in, in We talk about uh, smart highways and, and things like that and smart vehicles uh, doing V2V communications and how do we prevent um, cars from crashing into each other uh, or being hijacked uh, by malware. Um, I had the opportunity a few years ago to help the National Motor Freight Transport Association, which you've probably never heard of, but it's a very big player in the field of over-the-road trucks uh, for commercial uh, trucking. Um, I had the privilege of helping them start up a cybersecurity research program to understand uh, attacks against 18-wheeler trucks. And well, they're, they're looking to do autonomous vehicle trucks, and right? I mean, they want to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and um, because we brought together NSF funding some pieces of it and NMFTA uh, funding other pieces of it, we were able to convince uh, some of the big uh, truck manufacturers to actually donate 18 wheelers for wow. uh, academics to do research on. They had to promise not to wreck them, but they uh, uh, did get to uh, uh, experiment with, okay, this is what we know in theory, what can we tell in practice uh, and how can we improve it? So uh, you talk about resilience, uh, we need resilience of our transportation system, uh, especially right now to survive in this COVID era, but we need those trucks themselves to be resilient. And so this is an area where NSF plays a major role working with our partners in the private sector. Jeremy, thank you so much for your time. I mean, these are great, insightful thoughts on you know the things that you guys have been working on, but also just what other people are not even thinking about yet. So very much appreciate you taking the time to share with us today. My pleasure. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for listening to the Reimagining Cyber Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to have us cover a specific topic of interest, feel free to reach out to us and you can find out how in the show notes. And don't forget to subscribe.